chapter 14. It's page 873 in your pew Bible. And uh, we are going through a sermon series called Meals with Jesus uh, through the summer. And this is a meal of humility. And uh, as you're turning there to Luke 14, how many people in here have heard the expression, God helps those who help themselves, right? And uh, when asked on the street, you know, how many people believe that that's a Bible verse, what would your guess be? A ton. It, it is in the Bible. It's Second Obligations 3.16. I'll give you a second to turn there if you want in your pew Bible. Um, but no, most people believe that that verse, uh, that, that that saying is a verse in the Bible. And uh, even if we as a, a Bible church know that it's not in God's Word, there's an element uh, that, that we kind of still like. It feeds our pride. And it's this element that says that, you know, whatever success you've achieved in this life, you owe it to your own hard work. And there's something about us that just kind of just feeds our pride in that, that we're like, yeah, you know, God helps those who help themselves. The reason why you don't have X is because, well, you didn't work for it like, like, like I did, right? But God's word actually says in Isaiah 66 too, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who is it that God's going to look after? It is those that are humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. You might be more familiar with James 4, 6. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud. Literally opposes God against all omnipotence against a proud person. Would you want that? But God gives grace to the humble. So contrary to a popular false belief, it is not those who help themselves that God helps. It is those who humble themselves that God helps. I think John Stott crystallized it when he said this, Pride is the greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. That's just a great bottom line point this morning. Pride is our greatest enemy. It's, it's the first sin. It's from which all their sins flow, and humility is our greatest friend. None of us are immune uh, from the poison of pride in our life. It infects all of us. It might show up in different ways, different forms, different places. It might show up in, in, in how we present it in different ways. So the question really isn't if there's pride in your heart. It's just more of where is pride in your heart and, and how does it manifest itself. So this morning we're going to see that because God opposes the proud, because God opposes the proud, we must receive his kingdom in humility in six different ways. All this was revealed in a meal, and Christ uses the meal as a metaphor for his kingdom. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Luke chapter 14. We're going to read this kind of piece by piece uh, for our, as we go through it with our points. And so our first point this morning is that because God opposes the proud, you must accept the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's compassion. Because God opposes the proud, you must accept the kingdom of God's compassion. We see that in verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Linda Weibel this uh, week during Bible study said, that's our first case of congestive heart failure. There's the nurse, in case you're wondering what that is. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
But they remained silent. And he took him, and he healed him, and he sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. It's a classic meeting. The apparently religious, the self-righteous, legalistic Pharisees, and Christ contrasting with the truly religious, those that have true faith. The scene's pretty straightforward. He gets to go to a Pharisee's house for dinner. We know this is not his first time eating with the Pharisee, right? But it is the last time that Luke records that Christ is going to eat with a Pharisee. At this point in our story through Luke, Jesus is known as a major disruptor. He has already been called a demon, and uh, he works for Satan, and he casts out demons by the power of Satan. Luke chapter 9, he is already determined, and he has set his face towards Jerusalem. He knows he is going to die. The religious leaders have rejected him, and we know this is not a friendly dinner. How do we know that? Look at verse 1. Notice what they do. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were what? Watching him carefully. Literally translated, they watched him lurkingly, basically kind of asking that question, what is he going to do this time? And this is the third debate and conflict over the Sabbath in Luke's story. And so there's been a lot of controversy over what is supposed to happen on the Sabbath. And uh, here's this conflict that happens this time. It is whether or not to heal a man. Traditions have developed for the Pharisees, and uh, their traditions say that you're not supposed to heal unless life is at stake. If someone's about to die, you can heal then. But if not, it can wait for another day. Listen to Luke 13. Just actually, well, you can even probably see that on your page. Luke 13, 14. We already know what their opinion was of healing on the Sabbath. Luke 13, 14 says, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Listen, we're open six out of seven days, all right? I mean, can't you just schedule an appointment to be healed? And yet Christ asked them a question in verse 3. And if those of you that were here last week on race weekend, why does Christ ask them a question? We know that it's to reveal their heart, right? Christ is always wanting to get at their heart. And so he asked them in verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I believe this man was placed there as a trap. They watched him carefully. But notice that Christ asked them a question, is it lawful to heal him or not? They stay silent. He heals them, and then he gets dismissed. He goes away. If he was originally invited, why would Christ send him away? Think about that. He's at a dinner party. Probably just put there just to say, what is Christ going to do? Let's, let's trap him. If he really was an invited guest, get healed and then have dinner with us. He doesn't. He goes home. Send him on his way. They remain silent. Indefensible position. Isn't it awesome how Jesus, the truth, silences false teachers. They're just silent before him because they don't have a single Old Testament Bible verse that says you can't heal on the Sabbath. Not one single verse. This is important for us this morning. You want to know why? Legalist. We like to add to God's word, right? All these extra rules. And when you add to God's word, you actually diminish the authority of the Bible. 
Every time you add to grace, you subtract grace. Every time you add to the gospel, you delete the gospel. Every time you add to God's word, you diminish the authority of the Bible. And so we see here in this first six verses that man at his worst is religious. And he's using his religion and his laws and his traditions to protect himself from actually helping somebody. The inconvenience of helping a stranger. They use their traditions to nullify, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then what's the second commandment? Love your neighbor. Isn't this guy that's lying there that has congestive heart failure, isn't that their neighbor? Just go back with me in your minds to the, the story of the Good Samaritan. This is another version, another, another story, another edition, another chapter of the Good Samaritan. All these people walk by, they see their neighbor, and they say, nope, I'm going to the temple. Don't want to break a rule and get unclean. And what does Luke chapter 10, verse 37 say? The one who showed him mercy is the one who loved his neighbor. And what does Christ do here? Verse 4. He shows them mercy, but they remained silent, and he took him, and he healed him, and he sent him away, and then he gets to the point. Verse 5, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? What pride in a Pharisee to have a law to get an ox out of a ditch, but not the heart of mercy to get a person healed? They love possessions over people. How many of us are willing to do all kinds of things to fix a problem in our house and to, to go to that and to fix it immediately? But then we see somebody who needs help and we're like, you know, I just don't have time for that today. Or how much we are more immediately prone to sign up for social events. But maybe not willing to involve ourselves in service. And so Jesus' miracle actually becomes a rebuke and a call to repentance. So I wonder this morning, what kind of religion do you love? Most people love a religion where they can do something. God helps those who help themselves. We like that. We, we like to contribute in some way because it feeds our pride. But really, the kingdom of God is accepted only by those that are willing to cry out in mercy. Go over in your Bible to Luke 18. I think we'll see this clearer in Luke 18, verses 11 through 14. Luke 18, 11 through 14. You can see the heart here. The Pharisee, standing by himself, really praying to himself <laughs> for others to hear him, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Have you come here this morning with just your arms tired, you're drowning, all of your energy is spent trying to earn your own way and your own self-righteousness? Those aren't the people that are saved. It's the people that cry out for mercy. 
Those that look at Christ as their life raft, I pray that we would not be a church that is filled with all of these rules and traditions and laws that we can't actually just turn and help somebody and neglect the weightier matters of the law. Our second point this morning is that because God opposes the proud, you must accept the kingdom of God in humility. You must accept the kingdom of God in humility, verses 7 through 11. Now, when he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And when he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Did you notice how the tables have turned now? Remember verse 1, they were watching Jesus. What is Jesus doing now in verse 7? He when he was invited, when he noticed how they chose places of honor. So they're watching Jesus to see how he's going to break the law, and Jesus is looking for a moment that's going to reveal their heart. He's looking for that, what is it that they really, well, what is it that reveals someone's heart? Is it how they dress in this story? Is it what job they have? What is it that reveals our heart? It is looking for what we love. Christ is always after our heart because he knows where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. And what did these men treasure? The praise of man. They lived for the praise of man and they died by the praise of man. They wanted to get honor. It's not in the notes, but I remember being a junior high basketball player and I had made varsity, but I didn't get any playing time. And my dad said, Josh, if you ever want to get any playing time, you need to sit by the, by the coach. I was like the sixth or seventh man. And so when you're on the bench, I was sitting down at the far end, goofing off with my buddies, not really watching the game, squirting water, you know, playing with our towels, just kind of out there. But I was like, hey, uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the coach doesn't look down your way. Go and sit next to him. I remember moving up and going and sitting next to the coach and then him standing up looking to who to put in and he just walked right past me, <laughs> right down to somebody else. And I was like, oh, that hurt even worse. But it was nice as I got older and I got better when I just sat wherever I wanted and he looked up and there was that eager seventh grader wanting to get some play. I overlooked him and he's like, I want you, Josh, you go in. That was like, oh, he chose me. He, he wanted me. But how often, right, in our culture, do we want to be on that A-list status? It doesn't matter whether it's sports, whether it's academics, whether it's who gets invited over to whose house is in a church or who's on which committee or who's an elder. We want to be a part of the A-list. And it is a pharisaical, mad-dash scramble on who can sit closest to the host. It's always the seat of honor. If you've had a wedding you've had a celebration for a parent's anniversary recently, you know you have to put a lot of thought into who gets to sit beside who. Who sits where because there is honor and who gets to sit what? Next to mom and dad. Who gets to sit next to the mother of the bride? All of those things. And even the disciples were caught up in that, weren't they? Remember the disciples, James and John, getting their mom to go to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, can we sit on like your left and your right hand? Why? They wanted that honor. 
Remember Christ and his disciples arguing over who was the greatest in the kingdom? And he had to take a child and say, what? For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Luke 9, 46 through 48. So can you see yourself in this story? It's easy for us to have disdain for the Pharisees that just love to be preeminent, that love that prestige, but we miss our face in the portrait. Are you motivated out of a self-interest? Do you serve with self-sufficiency? I got this. I've been trained for that. Do you serve for notice, self-glorification, so that all can see? just want to encourage you to consider our Savior, who came not to be served, but to serve. That's the great reversal. Luke loves great reversals all through his gospel. Go back to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to see how God chooses Mary to hold Jesus in her womb. And Mary sings of this because she knows that it is the humble that get exalted. Luke chapter 1, verse 52 says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. It's all throughout Luke's gospel. Luke's message is clear. When God reveals the worldly order of things, make sure you're on the underside. Make sure. Embrace obscurity. Pride comes before the fall. God gives grace to the humble, but God opposes the proud. I know a couple of ways this works out in our church. We are actively trying to combat pride in our church all the time. Pride is our greatest enemy. Humility is our greatest friend. One way we do that is we have more than me preach God's word. I am more excited than anybody else in the church, not because it's a week off, as you might think, but I am more excited when other men preach from the pulpit. The next three Sundays, we have elders sharing from God's word. I rejoice in that. We have Bill Allen going to Deerfield Bible, Rich Planchet preaching here. All of these things, because why? Jeff taught us we don't want it to be a one-man show. But I also hope you notice that our sermons aren't filled with personal illustrations about our lives. All that I did during the week. Our sermons are filled with God's word. So you're not trying to follow us and be connected to our magnetic personality. Some of you don't even know if I have one. Okay, uh, but that, that, that's not the point. The point is we want to be surrounding everything about one person. Who? Jesus Christ. So it's about his word, not about our life. How are you combating pride in your life? Practice considering the greatness of God. Think about who he is. Serve in obscurity. Serve in your own home where nobody notices. Do it to the Lord. Our third point this morning is that because God opposes the proud, you must accept the kingdom of God's freeness. You must accept the kingdom of God's freeness. In verses 12 through 14, Christ switches from speaking to the guest to the host. Notice that change in verses 12 through 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, so it's the host, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." 
Because God opposes the proud, we must accept the kingdom of God's freeness. The Pharisees invited people just like them. And Jesus' advice is to invite people that aren't like you because they can't pay you back. And so in this parable here, we see that the host is supposed to be like God. God invites those to his table. God invites those to the kingdom, his kingdom dinner, that can't pay him back. And those people are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind spiritually. We can never merit a meal. Heaven is a restaurant that we can't afford. But guess what? It's also not a potluck that we can contribute to. Do you see the gospel theme in 12 through 14? I try to bring it out every week because it's on every single page of God's word. But Jesus' ethic is not one of reciprocity. You do this for me and I'll do this for you. It's not a paying it back. It is an ethic of grace. The kingdom of God, salvation, is something that has to be received humbly because it can't be earned. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel like dirt. You feel too sinful, too unworthy, too guilty for God to love you, for God to invite you to his table. I just want to let you know, that's not humility. That's actually pride. That's pride. Think for a moment how arrogant it would be if somebody took you out to an expensive restaurant and wanted to pay. What's the most expensive restaurant you can think of? The O in Concord? That's up there. I walk by there, it looks really expensive to go to the O and Concord in that new Main Street kind of downtown area. And so imagine someone says, hey, Josh, we want to take you to the O. Like, wow, awesome. And we're going to pay for you. Okay, great. Let me go home real quick. I'm going to microwave some TV dinners. I'm going to bring them with us. I'll serve it as appetizer at the O. Uh, what did you just do? You made their gracious gift a potluck. Let me contribute something. And you know what that person would say? Josh, you don't understand the greatness of the offer. You don't understand the greatness of the location. If you add anything to this meal, you actually destroy the meal and the beauty of the meal. Your TV dinner is only going to insult the O. And it is the same way with salvation. That any time we think that we can supplement his meal by our good works and our good deeds and how well we've done, and it's not just all of grace, we insult the king of grace who lavishes it freely on us. Humble yourself underneath its freeness. This also applies to us this morning as a church, Christian brothers and sisters. If you think about this whole idea of reciprocity, you do this to get back. It's all calculated. I want to ask you a question. Why do you go to church and what do you expect to get out of it? I think the same thing can apply to us as a church family. Do you come to church to get something? Do you come to get a list of contacts? Connections? Definitely is what's going on here at this table. Or do you come to church to look to give? Do you come to church to look to get? I want to get this experience, this emotion, this high. I, I play that they, they play the right song so I can kind of get to this feeling that I need for the week. Are we coming to get or are we coming with a blind eye in giving generously? Just to give. The best service is that which is given, not exchanged. Right? 
may the promise of verse 14 motivate you. Look at verse 14. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We think that God says, just invite those that can't pay you back, and that's the end of it. But God says, guess what? I'm going to motivate you by an eternal reward. That's what Paul says in Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than it is to what? Receive. And can we even apply that to our church time together? It is more blessed to give than it is to come saying, I need to get. Notice our fourth, our fourth point in verses 15 through 17. Because God opposes the proud, you must accept the kingdom of God's slowness. It's slow. Look at 15 through 17. There's two invitations here, and you're going to see how slow the kingdom comes. When one of those who had reclined at the table with him heard these things, he gave a toast, basically. He said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Two kinds of invitations. The first one is, You're invited, you get to come. And then when the meal is actually ready, it's, hey, come, because it's here. Now, you have to know that that food is going to spoil if they don't use it quickly. There is no refrigeration system back then. So there is a meal. It is ready. You need to drop everything, and you need to come. What that means is there are times when we will smell the kingdom coming, We'll get little tastes of it, little glimpse of it, little joy that the kingdom is breaking in. But the fullness isn't quite here yet. Doesn't it take humility to receive a kingdom that is slow? Liken it to a kid's birthday party. You're a parent, and you've decided that your kid's going to have a birthday party at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Mistake number one. Your kid wakes up at 6 a.m. Mom, when are my friends coming over? Three o'clock. We have a lot to do still. Kid walks away pouting, comes back at 6.05. Mom, when are my friends coming over? It's not time yet. Mom still has to make the cake. Comes back at 7. Is my party here yet? No. And you still have to take a nap before your friends come over. (laughs) Those are things you don't say, okay? And the kid melts. Why? Because there's a lot for mom and dad to still do to have it ready. And the kid isn't really humble. The kid is proud and he knows what he wants and he when he wants it. And he wants the party immediately. And isn't that how the Christian life is too? God's kingdom has begun. It's changed your life. You know that Christ is Lord. It is changing others' lives around you. But you still look around, and this week we still see death. We still see suffering. We still see loneliness. We still struggle with our church not being perfect yet, and it isn't what we want it to be in its fullness. And we go, like John the Baptist, he's in prison. If you're the king... Why am I in prison? And what does Jesus say to John the Baptist? The lame walk, the blind are sealing, you know, the blind are seeing, I'm healing people, but it's not here yet. God still has a lot of work to do. And so 
those that are involved in ministry, spiritual parents, you love your children and you love the church even when it isn't perfect yet. Does it lead you to frustration or to a humble hope of, Lord, I want your kingdom to come. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Does it burn hope in you? Or does it just lead you to frustration and say, those people will never change. I'm giving up on all this. It takes humility to receive a kingdom that is slow. Our fifth point, because God opposed the proud, you must accept the kingdom of God's priorities. Verses 18 through 20. When there's a slowness to the kingdom, you can get tempted to be distracted while you're waiting, right? You kind of get off task because Christ isn't here yet. So look at 18 through 20. So he invites them. Remember that? There's the RSVP system. They all said they're coming. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Verse 20, the guy that gets married, there's no request. I think this one kind of trumps it all. Still is popular today. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore... I can't come. There's no excuse. It's just can't be there. All right? Verse 21, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. People have been invited. Now they all begin to make excuses. I want you to notice carefully the excuses here about these people. If you look carefully at their excuses, you're going to see that all these people are unbelievers. They're unbelievers, but they're not typically what we think of an unbeliever. When we think of an unbeliever, we think of something that just outright rejects Christ. Kind of like the thief on the cross that rails against Jesus. But these are unbelievers, and notice that they were the ones that did RSVP with a yes at the beginning. They said they'll come. The servants are coming back to these ones, right? Why would the servants come back to these ones if they said no in the first place? Get it? So these are the people that originally said yes to Jesus, and then the cares of this world began to make them make excuses. They didn't commit. Why? They thought that this banquet would not disturb their everyday lives. I'm going to say yes to Jesus as long as it doesn't disturb my everyday life. I'm just going to change what I do on the weekends and how late I stay up on Saturday night and I have to go to church on this day and then we have a small group and we have, uh, we have Sunday night of worship once a month. You know, this is just disturbing my life. And so they have excuses that are based upon possessions and relationships. Those are really the only two things in this world, right? Possessions and relationships. I think of Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, how the cares of this world choke out their love for God. John Piper, great pastor, he writes this in this passage. It's worth the quote. This is what he said. The greatest enemy of a hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetites for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video 
but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of the earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. It's a challenging quote, isn't it? So we notice that they make excuses, and then because of that, notice who is excluding who here. Who is excluding who? Oftentimes Christians get labeled that God sends people to hell and he is excluding people and all these kinds of things. Who's excluding who here? Jesus invited how many? Many. And he goes to them and says, hey, the table's ready, come, come. And what do they do? They begin to make excuses and exclude themselves. It's not the church. It is the people that are making the excuses. So being a disciple of Christ is not sometime uh, just minimal volunteer work. We must give up everything to fall underneath his priorities. To accept this kingdom, you must humbly submit to his priorities. Later on in the chapter, he says, please count the cost. No one builds a tower without first seeing how much it's going to cost. No one goes to war without seeing if they have enough men. Count the cost because salvation is valuable. Matthew, 11, or Matthew 16, 26 says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Just a question for Christians here this morning, those that profess Christ. What thing stands out as evidence that validates your claim that you're a Christian? What unpleasant thing have you said, I've denied this, this pursuit this pleasure, this person, I've counted that but loss so that I may pursue Christ. You say, Josh, who are you to judge? Well, the Bible says that we all are to judge because we can deceive ourselves over our profession of faith. Many at this table or at this banquet thought that they would be there. And what does Christ say at the end of verse 24? For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. They thought they were all going. It is better to give diligence to your calling and make sure that you are sure now, which means that I have to be faithful in preaching the gospel. It is a gospel that is faith and repentance, a turning away from and a turning towards Christ. What have you turned away from to give claim that, yes, I am following Christ, and we need the church to help us? We're living in a generation that doesn't see church as valuable. Why go? It's me and my personal relationship with God. Why the church? This is a great reason why the church. Why go? Why do we need the church to help us follow Christ? Because we all need to come and to make deposits of God's worth and God's glory and God's beauty and to see that. So when the circumstances come, the hard things come, and we begin to want to make excuses for not being here, we have something to cash in on. We have something to say, oh no, you know what? This has been hard, this has been difficult, but God is worth it. God is valuable. I see all these things but lost that I may know the power of Christ and his resurrection. You don't get that without being together and all these other cares the world can choke and turn you away. 
So here it is a humble plea this morning. Humble yourself underneath the priorities of this kingdom. And finally, notice that Christ doesn't postpone the dinner and he doesn't withdraw the meal. He just chooses a different crowd. He just chooses a different crowd. In verses 21 through 24, the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled People that were succeeding in life, people that were winning at life, they didn't want to have a savior that disrupted their life. But it's people that are the down and the out that go, I can't wait to come. They receive that good message because the servant comes back and says, there's still room. They actually came. I remember talking with a girl just this year from Plymouth State. Uh, she wanted some counsel about what to do in life. And in that counsel, I shared the gospel with her in a number of different ways. And she comes and she tells her friend, you know, I kind of like Pastor Josh's advice. It made sense. But the one thing that really bothered me was, this is a very, you know, intelligent, educated young lady. The one thing that just bothered me was that he kept calling both of us sinners. That's part of the gospel, that we're a wicked sinner and it took Christ's bloody death on the cross to pay for our sins so that God could adopt us freely by his grace. And it is the put-together people, people that are winning at life, people that have the world by the tail, that really find it insulting that you have to receive it by grace. And we can't turn our gospel of grace into a man-made religion of Pharisees. Do good, be devout, be upright, be decent. We have to say that we have to turn and repent and we have to accept it humbly. It's common. Notice what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to pray that they will come to us. Is that what it says? The servant said, what, what, do you, what do you want me to do? Pray? No. 23, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. Why do you have to compel them? Does that bother you? Sound like salesmanship there? Does it bother you that you have to compel them? It's the same word that Jesus used when he compelled the disciples to get back into the boat to go fishing. The people that are the poor, the blind, and the lame, and the crippled, they don't think that they deserve to eat at the table. And you have to overwhelm them with, yes, we want you. We had a girl that we wanted to have over to our house for dinner who was homeless, and we had to overwhelm her with, it is safe, and yes, we want you. She didn't believe that we really would do that, and we had to convince her. Come, yes, we'd love to do this. It's nothing. We do this for anybody. Friends, how is your view of the life to come, God's kingdom and its commonness impacting your life today? Would we be a church that doesn't spend all of our time with people like us? There's a tension here. Every sermon I get myself in a little bit of trouble. I want to have the tension balanced, so please give me a little bit of grace. There are a lot of benefits, hear that. There are a lot of benefits to high schoolers being with high schoolers. There's a lot of benefit of public school Christians knowing other public school Christians. There's a lot of benefit to young marrieds hanging out with young marrieds. There's a lot of benefit to sages hanging out with sages. 
Tons of benefit. But what does Christ say here? He doesn't say don't ever have a meal with your friends. It's not what he's saying. But if that's all who you hang out with, that's all that you want to be around are other college students because you're a college student, Christ is saying here, how are you any different than the world? The world hangs out with all of those that are like each other. Right? We associate with each other. But the kingdom, the gospel, the church is to be delightfully different. So you know what I'd love to see? I would love to see college students who have flexibility in their summer jobs come to Thursday morning Bible study. The older saints need to be encouraged that the college kids are still putting their faith in action and the older saints need to be encouraged by the dreams and the ambition and the hustle of these young kids in living out their faith. You know what I want to see? When we cancel youth group for Sunday night of worship, I want to see teenagers coming to Sunday night of worship to know about the hymn sings and the testimonies and the accepting of members and the removing of members to see that life in a church isn't just the fun and the games and the snow camps. But there's real business that has to be done. And it's God-glorifying business. You know what I want to see? I want to see a church filled on Friday for Joni Terry's funeral because there's a whole group of family that doesn't know Jesus and we get to go to them. And we get to show them hospitality. We get to sit with them and provide a meal with them and get to know them and not stay in your church bubble at that funeral. Break into that family and share stories of how Joni's faith has impacted yours. Amen? That's what we get to do. I want to see prayer hour on Sunday night filled with families where the age goes from 6 to 70. It's common. It's open to all. And have we... Though there are a lot of benefits to being with people like our age, have we become like the world where all we know are people like us and we don't know a single unsafe person or we only hang out with people in our age demographic? No. Go to them. Listen to the various needs in the church. Be spirit-filled and meet those needs. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That was a lot to take in. And uh, I pray that you will humble yourself underneath its freeness, underneath its commonness, underneath its priorities, uh, that we just would be humble Christ followers. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. It was a big passage. Uh, We pray that we would uh, continue in the teaching of your word in our small groups and as from house to house. May we uh, be challenged by what your kingdom will be like, and may that impact our life now. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.